Hello and welcome to another episode of CISO Tradecraft, the podcast that provides you with the information, knowledge, and wisdom to be a more effective cybersecurity leader. My name is G. Mark Hardy. I'm your host for today, and I'm joined by two amazing people here, Cindy and Ron Gula, and we're going to have a fantastic discussion on a lot of what they've done and where they're going, and I'm sure you're going to love that. But quickly, a quick word from our sponsor, Risk 360. They're a cybersecurity technology and consulting firm They work with high-growth technology firms to help leaders build, manage, and certify security, privacy, and compliance programs. They publish weekly thought leadership webinars and download resources like budget and assessment templates. Take a look at some of their great information at risk360.com slant resources. That's R-I-S-K-3-S-I-X-T-Y dot com. Anyway, back to the show. Cindy, Ron, thank you for coming on board and welcome. G. Mark, good to see you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, and again, I, I thank you for uh, being over at your home a couple of weeks ago and uh, enjoyed sitting out in the back and cigars and everything else like that. And of course, last night we're on another call and the two of you look like you're out in the backyard enjoying your cigars as well. So nice to know that we have that in common, but hopefully a little bit more as well. So for our audience who may not be familiar with who you are, would you mind, let's start with Cindy. Tell us a little bit about like who you are and where you came from and your, and your background. Yeah, well, thanks. Great to be here. So I have a little bit of a different story. I grew up in Western New York, very rural. I graduated with 39 people in my public school class. So it was very small, very farmland. And then in addition to that, I was the youngest of eight children. So very competitive, very curious all the time and went to Alfred University. So my degree is actually ceramic engineering. So I'm, my degree is in glass engineering and science. So I'm a material scientist by trade. But uh, when I worked at Syracuse, China, in Syracuse, New York, happenstance, I got set up on a, a blind date and uh, met my voluntarily related wow. uh, <laughs> uh, sidekick here. So. Sidekick. I like that. <laughs> we are on the side. So, yep. you know, you are a sidekick right now. It's like Ronald Reagan introducing his roommate, Nancy, all those years ago at the press dinner. <laughs> And yeah, so I like the Western New York part. I'm, I'm from there as well. Ellis of only six children, so mom wasn't quite as, as active. But anyway, yeah, glad to have you on the show. And of course, you had a chance to meet this guy, Ron. Ron, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I, I'll just pick up to where when Cindy met me. So I gave her homework because I was working at the NSA. And she's like, what do you do? And I'm like, no such agency. And she's like, what's that? And it just kind of shows how much cyber people kind of live in a bubble, so to speak. So I gave her a book called The... Puzzle Palace, another one called The Cuckoo's Egg, Cliff Stoll. And she's like, great, I got homework, which is, which is, which is fun. You, um, you forgot the best part. Yeah. When I asked him what he did, he mm. said, oh, I could tell you, but I'd have to kill you. I actually said that. And, 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 and again, being in Syracuse, New York, north of New York City, I was like, are you in the mob? And that was a little bit easier for me to understand than that he worked at the National Security Agency, which I had no idea what that was, what they did. And why it was important. Yeah, the no such agency. I mean, I remember I got recruited to go there and actually had orders in hand back in 1984 to go over to NSA. And I think I mentioned this before on one of the other shows, but my detailer in Washington gave me a nasty call. Lieutenant, what are you trying to do? I said, I want to go to NSA. He said, what are you going to do there? I want to do computer security. And here's a quote for the ages. The Navy has no need for computer security. You're going to go back out to sea. And that led to my departure from active duty. And ultimately going into the consulting. But you were with the Air Force, correct? 
Yeah, so I went in, I wanted to be a fighter pilot and actually got into a flight school called the Euro-NATO Joint Jet Pilot Training down at Shepard Air Force Base in Texas. And even the last person in that class would have got an F-16, F-4, F-15, something like that. But when you turn the plane, the, the tiny little trainer airplane, that's still a jet, but it blacked me out like around three, four Gs. That's not a good quality to have. I tell that story quite a bit, but I sort of grew up still a big fan of aviation. I played digital combat simulator. I think we got like four or five drones here. We got like a Chinese drone, which is kind of cool. So a lot, a lot of fun. You get to monitor the telemetry that comes out of that thing with the equivalent of a wire shark and see. We just don't, don't attach it to the house. <laughs> exactly. So in, in going to the Air Force, instead of going into the aviation program, you ended up in what career track? So the, the actual career track was communications. Like I was, I, I forget my AFSC, but it was, it was basically communications. And there was no cybersecurity thing. I mean, cyber right. command didn't exist back then. And basic communications officer school, which I attended down at Keesler Air Force Base, was really basic, right? They talked about things like phone switch capacity. Like we all can't call each other at the same time. Like basic information theory about how to make things work and, and, and stuff like that. That was a really good basis because I was already a double E and I wanted to basically learn how everything worked, right? Satellite communications, the red switches, the internet was something new back then. And I had a love for UFOs. And I said, if I'm going to go learn about UFOs, I want to go to the National Security Agency. Now, of course, I was wrong about that, but that's how I ended up at the National Security Agency. Interesting. I know each of us have had Richard Thiem on our shows. And of course, Richard's done a lot of research over the years into those as well. And we could probably go in an entire different direction there. But yeah, it's interesting. I'm trying to remember now how I ended up at NSA, actually interviewing and then doing all the fun stuff in the poly and things like that. And we used to kind of joke that they'd put up a tombstone in your hometown and then everybody disavows the fact that you're living someplace in Maryland on the other side of the, of the Potomac from the other three-letter agency. But So that could have been a career. And the Air Force represents a viable career pattern and it's a great opportunity for both professional growth as well as feedback, but yet you chose not to stay full-time in the military. What, what went through your head getting to that point? Yeah, if you look at what Cyber Command does now, and you think about the role of the National Security Agency and not spying on people, a lot of the work I did at the NSA was 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 very similar. Like we wanted to help the people defend themselves. There's a security mission and 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 whatnot. But there's a fine line between defending yourselves and telling people about zero days that maybe we're using to defend, for, which is what they kind of coined that that term forward. So I got I was I just didn't really think I had the best opportunities staying in and decided to go out and try to do more stuff commercially and ended up at BBN. And I learned all about rapid product development. And then after that, I went to this company called US Internetworking, which is one of the very, very first cloud companies. I learned all about that and then came home one day and Cindy said yes to the second best question, which was, <laughs> hey, I have an idea to start a company. And we started Network Security Wizard, which did the network intrusion detection with the Dragon IDS. So, Sydney, that was your idea then to go out on your own. Just material science wasn't working for you, the glass? Or? Well, well, the interesting thing. So, in New York State, there was a lot of material manufacturing positions. So Corning glass is what comes to mind for there me. There you go. And and Circus China, Buffalo China, Oneida China. There there was a lot of manufacturing. And so, when Ron asked me to move to Maryland. I said, sure. But when I got to Maryland, there's not a lot of manufacturing. So 
So there was a bit of a meandering trying to find different jobs. I actually temped at one position, which was great because I did HR, I did billing, invoicing, filing, just anything that an engineer not, would not necessarily have access to. I did it under a temp agency. And so when Ron came home and said, hey, I got an idea for a company, I was like, well, those business people are out drinking and smoking and still managed to pass their classes. And I knew how hard my engineering classes were. So I'm like, got to be a piece of cake. So we got an accountant, got a lawyer, and then started the company. And so I did everything but coding with the company. I actually did program. I programmed in Fortran and Pascal. So I learned really early, I don't like coding. <laughs> <laughs> but you you mentioned some background about doing kind of the if you will, support functions for a, a small business, any size business, really, the HR, doing the accounting, payroll, and things like that. And in a way that almost puts you like two people back to back in a bar where you're looking at different skill sets. Did you find that the two of you had a lot of overlap or were you complementary? And if so, how did you figure that out that it was going to work? That you wouldn't be, for example, two blind people wanting into the same ditch? Yeah, no, it was very, very complimentary. Again, Ron really liked to code. I didn't like to code. We had conversations really early on where our lanes were and the trust factor regarding how, how much and who would you trust more because we both had the same outcome and intent is, is being successful. So we were very supportive of each other, but we also had lots of conversations regarding this is my lane and we would have conversations regarding how to get past that. And a lot of times those conversations were over wine and cigars. So it all kind of came crashing down one day though. We were at a SANS conference and Cindy was kind of like, all right, it was just me and her, two people at the company and, and we're doing booth duty. And I'm like, look, people aren't going to come up and ask anything super technical at a, at a conference. This is basically network IDS. We run Linux. We can do 10 megabit. We can, we're, we're, we're reaching hundred megabit, which at the time was, was very fast speeds. Literally, the first person comes up to Cindy and says, how do you handle overlapping packet, packet fragments for evasion attacks? And it was like, meet Rob. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let me go drag this other guy over here and answer that. But yeah, that's kind of the thing any of us have done shows and things like that. Because I did a lot of product companies, but not the opportunity that you had had to, to get it going. So, of course, one of the challenges I face, like anybody else as an entrepreneur, is how do you get that first customer? How do you go from a bright idea to maybe a meeting with a lawyer and getting the paperwork set up? You don't just sit back and wait for the phone to ring. You've got to go out and hunt them down and catch them and eat them. How do you get that thing off the ground? Well, the, the late 90s, early 2000s were a lot different than, than now. So open source wasn't a big thing, but we had a, we had a free download. We had something called Dragon Squire you could, you could download and, 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 and run, and that was fairly innovative at the time. There were a whole lot of network intrusion detection systems that, that did that. We were active on, there were a variety of mailing lists out there. If you think of that as a form of social media, we were very active on that, sharing up, updates, attacks, that, that sort of thing. And at, the, at that time, the world was doing network intrusion detection for the very, very first time. Our friend Marty Rush wrote uh, Snork and released that. You had internet security systems going out and combating with network ICE. You had a uh, network flight recorder, Marcus Raynham, and you had, of course, the Wilbur guys from, from Cisco doing all sorts of, of stuff in this, this area. So there was a lot of 
we're better than these guys. They're better than us. There, there's, there's a lot of stuff, but what really did it for us is there was NSS, it wasn't NSS, it was Network World Magazine and Greg Shipley, who's over at InQtel now, he did an evaluation after we ran Dragon on the Capture the Flag Network at DEF CON, which if you think about that, doing that in the early 2000s was pretty freaking cool. Late 90s. Late 90s. That's, that really got us a lot of credibility and a lot of word of mouth. And when you're a two-person company going to six persons, getting a $50,000 contract, $100,000 contract, more than that even, that's all you need to be successful. And we just, we jumped on that, supported those customers, and we had a great time with it. And one of the other things was universities were at the leading edge of technology. The, the people who worked at the universities were seeking and, and very accepting of the new thing versus the established. And so some of our first companies or first customers were universities, very well established universities that saw the power and, and the product, the solid product that we were putting out. And they were able to use it in a way that the other commercial products, they could not because they were very closed systems. It was a lot mm -hmm. of trust us. We're telling you what you're doing. Whereas Dragon, we really allowed people to write their own signatures and come up with their own ways to hunt. And that was a very attractive idea at the time. And, and that was also a big reason it was popular. And it really taught us as we went on to Tenable, and even now as we're investing in companies, nobody's perfect. And if you have closed signature rule system, you have to have a customer support issue when you have a false positive. But if you have an open system, you actually can get feedback from your users. They can correct your rules. There's somebody out there who's probably smarter or has a different application or version than, than, than you do, and you can get that feedback. And that was something we had. It was a commercial system, but the rules were, you could read them. And uh, you know that some of those rules showed up in some other people's products, but for the most part, I wouldn't change our outcome at all. We didn't have to raise any venture capital. We had deployments at the DOD. We, we had a big deployment at AOL, which I think we can say now since they're owned by whoever, but we had some really large deployments for a eight person company. Zach. Eight, six. That's why she ran HR. Six. Yeah. Yeah. You get to the point. So, so two questions come to mind. And again, I'm trying to think in the role of people who are out there thinking, I want to try to do my own thing. And I've got this great idea and uh, you've either got a partner, whether it's a spouse, which is really wonderful and, or you're on your own. But you get to the point where your workload is building up and building up and you're like, I, I can't add more hours to my week. So you had indicated you went from two ultimately to six more people. How do you make your first hire? What, what goes in? Are you hiring a developer? Are you hiring a salesperson, marketing, HR? What's, what's that first step toward getting off the ground as a beginning entrepreneur? Well, one of the big things that we did early, and I really think companies should think this, is make your product easy to deploy and easy to use. When you have that, then the sales product is, is not as much important early on. So we hired developers and Ron, based on his experience, had had great people he worked with and they were great to us and decided to work with us again. And so those developers just focused on that product. So once the product was usable, the sale became easier because we weren't convincing people. It was the people using the product would tell two friends, you got to try this, you got to do this. And if you make it easier to use, then those early adopters are becoming your QA. They're becoming embedded. They're, they're now involved in, in your success. 
and they become great customers and they become great evangelists. And so the sales process just starts growing from, from that point. So it's really about getting it right to begin with. And if you do so, then the run, it'll start to take care of itself as you go down the runway. And I guess the second question that came to mind is at some point in time, you moved on from network security wizards. Did somebody come out of the a guy with a trench coat and a checkbook with a lot of zeros and said, I'm going to make your day? Or was it a more deliberate, hey, let's do some sort of a transition or exit? How, once you get to that point, yeah. and you move on. So it's it's a lot of the early times we did with Never Security Wizards. And then, of course, it eventually led to starting Tenable. Right. It really informs what we're doing now with the investing side. So when we started Never Security Wizards, we didn't raise any venture capital. And I had, I had two people tell me two interesting things. One was a former NSA senior leader who says, you can't do snipping. The world's going to be encrypted. And that might become true, but even 20 years later, it's not true. And the second thing was, wow, if you raised venture capital, you could have made a lot more money. And the, the thing is, is we, we share with our employees, but frankly, when you found a company, you know, Cindy and I own most of that. And if you can imagine somebody buying it for double digits, that kind of changes our life. And we all, we didn't have anybody to answer to except our customers and our employees and each other. So, so that was pretty good. So we had three offers. We went with Interis's networks. I really, and that was a spin out of Cabletron is what Interis's was. They were a switch company. And I really felt that putting network intrusion detection into switching fabric was, was an important thing. It was, it was because in easy, it was, to me, it was easier to do than putting agents everywhere. And if you look at the world today, you know, completely wrong, right? Switches are dumb and people have CrowdStrike and Sentinel One everywhere. And, but we went with Interesis and we learned a lot from Interesis. Yeah. So they were a hardware company and we were a software company and it was square peg round hole with the operation side. So we taught them a lot regarding how and why software, how you get it deployed, demonstrated the margins and, and really started to make our worth known. And a lot of those switch engineers and, and routing engineers wanted to come and learn more about our software and became really good at the, the engineering and, and deployment of software versus just the hardware solution, which in the late nineties was, was kind of the, the mantra. Right. So it's some, yeah. So you reach this point and you go, okay, fine. We've done an exit. And you can do a little bit of a happy dance when you look at the bank account. But some people who don't understand what it's like to have a fire in you that want to go build something would say, well, then why don't you just go off and buy some little island someplace and sit back and drink pina coladas till you, you get old? And the answer is, of course, no, this is what gives meaning to life. And so then came Tenable. What, what was the genesis for that? And how, how did that get going? So it's, it's an interesting story. So the gentleman who led the business development effort to, to acquire Network Security Wizards for Interesis was Jack Hubbard. So Jack was in the M&A group of Interesis. We got to hang out together and, and we, we, we were kind of talking about different ideas and there was no sort of grand plan to go start a public company at, at that point. And we started having kids around that, that time. And, and I kind of said, look, I think, I think I got an idea here that we can work on it with Jack. And it took off pretty quick. So we started Tenable Network Security very quickly. Cindy was was back in the back in the office working on all Operation. that all that stuff. Basically, Jack and Cindy really kind of ran, I think, most of the company the first 10, 10 years or so. But in many ways, Tenable was the opposite of network security wizards in that we were detecting attackers and trying to stop them through prevention and alerting. 
But Tenable was basically pointing out all the ways they could break in. So Tenable was very much a, a larger problem set of trying to measure compliance, measure security, count your assets. And if you look at where we are now with like the NIST cybersecurity framework or even basic compliance like PCI and HIPAA, none of that existed in 2002 when, when we, and we started. And then another thing that happened, which again, wasn't planned is Dragon. We had an integration with Nessus. Renault Darrison, we did vulnerability correlation. Renault was the author and founder of, of, of Nessus. He joined us as well. So we quickly were able to get to market with this open source product, Nessus, but this commercial solution that solved an amazing amount of large and small enterprise vulnerability management processes. And one of the things that we had when we started Network Security Wizards, being husband and wife, we got labeled mom and pop shop. Yeah. And investors didn't want to invest in husband and wife teams. And so... Whereas we didn't need money when we did go out to, to look and test the market, we were not getting a, a warm reception. And if you remember the late 90s, there were actually a couple companies that had pretty nasty divorces where the, the people were uh, married. And so there was a lot of gun shyness with that. So when we started Tenable, I said, you know what? I don't want to go through that again. The three of you be the, the, the named founders. But I'll do all that business stuff and, and take care of operations again. So that's, that's how we all, the four of us, started Tenable. I mean, they use your maiden name or something like that in the presentations, and maybe they don't draw the connection. Uh, even when we were out towards the end of my time at Tenable, we were out raising money for, for the, the last really large round that we did. I got, I got called out in a meeting. Like, like, you guys are a mom and pop shop. And I, I, I really didn't understand where this was coming from because you know, Cindy wasn't in the deck, wasn't in the, on, on the main website. And it was some of our competitors had seeded that kind of information. They knew we were raising and, and, and stuff like that. So it, it life is life. Yeah. And it was great. Cause Ron would be like, just come in and meet Cindy. And they're like, oh, okay. Got it. Now, now we understand that it's not, it, it, it's not a by title only kind of thing. You, you, really you raised an interesting topic there, and the idea is is that someone else is going to try to spoil your affairs. You're there, and of course, a lot of times they think, hey, if I can just get the product to run, get the compiles and that works, then I got to get a customer to buy. And then if I can go ahead and get the marketing and everything like that. But it's almost like in the, in the military, you used to say the enemy gets a vote, and you can have this grand strategy and this great plan, but it doesn't survive contact with the enemy. And it seems that in business, other companies, for better or worse, are going to see themselves as an opposition. At some level, you're below the radar, and they don't care. But when do you get big enough that all of a sudden they look at you and go, we got to do something about these guys? Well, when we were, when we were below the radar with, with Dragon, we were at a SANS intrusion detection conference, and we had a competitor sitting right next to us. And somebody came up, and we didn't happen to be there. And he said, you know Ron and Cindy? He goes, yeah, they're brother and sister. And last name and they're, they're really good. But, but then later on, they're like, obviously we're not brother and sister, but they're looking at us kind of, kind of crazy. Right. So there's, there's a lot of frenemies out there and we've always learned that there's frenemies. We should know who you're competing against and, 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 and whatnot. A lot of times that only happens at the founder level, the CEO level. When you have a sales team engaging another sales team, we've actually had situations where we were like, you cannot, I've had to pull people like, you cannot go to that other booth and antagonize this other company. And by the way, if they come over here, make sure this is a safe space and, and, and whatnot. There's, there's things like that that happens, which is really interesting. 
And then of course, what happens at customer sites when the other vendor isn't there, God only knows, but we hear all sorts of rumors about what's, what's been said false and what's been said exaggerated. And it's, it's, it's interesting times. People just don't buy the best product They're, They, they get sold and they get, they get bought. And, and culture means a, a lot. And so from a point of view, we know what we can control and we know what we can't control. And therefore we really try to drive that down into anyone that we work with. And the reality and the, and the result of that is we have lots of people who would continue to work with us again and again. And so that, that speaks volume to, to the quality of character and, and beyond what anyone else tries to define us. And, and we just think it's important to live that way. And I think you've hit on a key point is the culture of the organization. Now in the military, we call it the command climate. And as a commanding officer, you're responsible for that. And a lot of times you'll inherit something from a prior boss. And the analogy I do are two destroyers made at the same shipyard at the same time, and they're identical copies. But this one's a rust bucket, and this one's winning all the awards and got great-looking sailors. And you come back five years later, 100% turnover. This one's still a rust bucket. And this one's great because over here, oh, man, what did you do wrong to get assigned to this ship versus you are on the best ship in the Navy. This is this rocks. You're going to love it. So as founders, you get to set that level of culture, which is a really unique privilege, but it's also a great responsibility. So for people thinking of doing their own thing, what do you think are important elements of culture that allow both people to want to persist as well as to allow the organization to succeed? So there's a couple of things. I'm sure you'll think of a, a couple here as well, but as we were growing up in, in Maryland, it wasn't the fact that we were a company that made money and had customers. It was that we would get typecast. Oh, you're an East coast company. You're not VC backed. So therefore you must be doing services. You're fed gov. And at the time we first raised $50 million from, from Excel partners, we had $50 million in the bank. And, and people were stunned that we were that big and doing a product company and doing, doing SaaS. But the big reason we did that raise was so we could recruit people from Northrop Grumman, Booz Allen, people, people looked at going to work for a hundred person company or 200 person company as like a risky thing. Another thing that was back in the day is people were starting to do this experimentation with, well, four day work weeks or IT people can do their projects on Friday and, and that kind of thing. And we always kind of we're, we're, we're experimenting with things like that, but we never did free lunch. We did like Thursdays, we did lunches. We all tried to eat together. Of course, in 2023, that's kind of a hard thing when you think of everybody working all over the place and all the benefits that we give to IT people and developers now and, and, and whatnot, but that helped us do culture. And we did a lot of fun events. Like our, our picnics were always great. We, we started doing movies like that's pretty commonplace right now. Let's take a company to the movies and stuff like that. But in, in like the early. 2000s, I really felt it was sort of like, if you have kids, you want to show your kids like the same things you did when you, when you were their age. And I kind of felt like that's kind of how we treated the, 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 the company very much family, very much enabled. And to the point, I, it, this is public out there. All that money we raised at Tunnel was secondary. So we had a number of meetings where we called everybody into a room and we basically said, you can sell your stock. And we created some millionaires. We created some people who just paid off their houses. We, we had people who rolled it to the IPO. And a lot of those people stayed and worked with us and they're still attainable, believe it or not. So I'm sure you have some other thoughts. Yeah. And trust, trust and respect are, are big, big culture, what foundational pieces. 
And and the the idea that any one person is going to solve everything is not going to work. So giving that trust of I did all legal, I did all sales or HR, but I hired people to replace me to then take those things over and do those. And I trusted that they would do a good job and they appreciated the the freedom to 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 step into that position and actually fully exercise their capabilities. And I think Ron was really good at that as well. When we would hire a developer or or engineer, it was very much, this is what I expect you to do, test it out a little bit, and then really start allowing them to grow into where they wanted to be. So executive assistants we would hire, they wouldn't stay in those positions because they'd get to learn the company a little bit more and then say, hey, I want to go to sales. I want to go into customer success. I wanted, I wanted QA support. We were very much encouraging people to get comfortable with the rest of the company and see if they did want to do something different and pivot and expand their own career. And one of the things that we do with Thursday lunches is we said, there's only one rule. You can't sit with people that you work with on a day-to-day. So we had our salespeople sitting with QA. We had our engineers sitting with finance. And it really allowed to break down a lot of those silos and a lot of those, those ideas that they're different. I can't talk to them. And, and it really helped build culture. Now you find yourself in a role at Gula Tech Adventures, which adventures, I should say, I, I tend to think of adventures, but it's really an adventure. So A, I love the name. But B, what you're at a point now is you got a couple of things going on. You're, you're looking at startups. You're, you're hearing a lot of pitches and things like that. And when I was over at Sand Hill Road out in California, it just piles and piles of these things. I was talking to the, the VCs out there. But what do you look for now as a investor in a startup? What actually, how many plans do you see a year and how many do you think you actually want to move on? And, and what's the differentiation? So when we, when we came out of Tenlo, we did three investments. We lost money on two of them and we, we made more than enough to come back from the third one. And we said, look, we can, we can do this. This is what it looks like. And same kind of attitude, right? We're, we're not perfect. We're not going to be, everything we invest in is not going to touch the Midas touch. But we started doing basically philanthropy and investing as novices, right? We were writing small checks and trying to help out. And very, very quickly, we were like, okay, we actually have the resources to write bigger checks. So we, we do write multi-million dollar checks and sit side by side with some of the big cyber venture funds. Hunchbase tracks us and, 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 and whatnot. But we said this is an adventure because investing is only one thing. We try to support policymakers at the state level and the federal government level. And we try to support the nonprofits as, as, as well. And when we do the nonprofits and the, the, the companies, we really look for five things. We want to know what problem they solve. We want to know how they solve it. We want to know, can they do this? They have some proof. We want to know, like, what are the, what's the ask? What, what are they asking for us, right? What kind of help is it money? Is it time? And then finally, what's their vision of success? And, and we often find a lot of companies where we like the problem space, but with their vision of success is, is, is wrong or their, their money is asking for is wrong. The time commitment's wrong. Not a good fit for Gula Tech Adventures. But at, we're, we're also looking at that through the context of trying to fix cyber. So if somebody's trying to bring us a new endpoint company, we're probably not going to invest it because the world's got CrowdStrike and, and Sapa One. 
But when we met Hunter's Labs, for example, Nerf Focus is bringing endpoint EDR to, they, they, they say the other 99%, but basically small business. All day we'll do stuff. So we're tr if it's a new market, we think that's great. And if it's cutting edge tech, we think that's great too. And, and the founders do matter a lot, just from a point of view of coachability and culture. It is tough to have one founder be controlling of everything. And, and so to see a dynamic of how founders work together and, and splitting duties just gives you a really good idea regarding their growth potential. Because if they don't see the, around the corner, we, we kind of do and be able to tell them, I know that this seems like it makes sense today, but ten, 10 months from now, you're going to run into this problem. If you structure it this way, it's going to be much better. And so those who listen versus those who push back and, and my way or the highway, we, we have the luxury of not having to ride all the rides at the amusement park. And, uh, and then it, it, if something doesn't fit in our wheelhouse, not necessarily culture or anything else, we can pass it to other VCs um, that we know are interested and this would be a little bit down their, their alley more than ours. We have a great relationship because we want people to be successful. We want them to solve the cyber issues, but we also want them to have a great time and journey and experience that we've had and then hopefully to turn and burn and do that again. Right. And it's last time I checked, I've counted 18 successful exits. And, and so that's, that's an amazing record. And I count another 34 portfolio companies just hitting the, the website. And so as you look at kind of the funnel, hey, I, I've got a business plan. Hey, I've talked to you about it. I'm interested. Might even get funded to the point where you get a second round to, to end up. What's the cut down? Is this sort of like getting into professional sports where, hey, I'm playing baseball on the sandlot when I'm in ninth grade. So I'm going to go ahead and make the major leagues. Well, thousand to one odds against, but some people do. How does that kind of work out? So sometimes you fall in love with the technology more than the team. Sometimes the team more than the technology. Sometimes it's a market space, but, but increasingly with, with the success rate that we've had and the portfolio we have, we're, we're, we're not doing like another 15 investments right now, right? I mean, today in 2023, we're kind of coming off this glut where, or I, I should say it wasn't a glut. It was kind of a, a slog, if you will, but we're venture investing didn't happen. Most VCs focused internally on, on their funds, making sure they survived Silicon Valley Bank, make sure they survived, they got the cash flow positive, that they got to, I mean, it's a, it's a whole new, a lot, of, a lot of young VCs, this is a new time for them because they are trying to cash, get companies to cash flow positive and really make tough, tough decisions like, should I exit now and change my life? Or should I wait till maybe 2024, 2025? And Add a zero in my exit. So it's, it's very interesting times right now. So within that environment, we're not taking on a lot of new companies. The la last one we did was a Taurus here. It's one of these CNAP cloud security posture management products, basically everything source code in the cloud. We did that earlier this year. We've looked hard at probably about four companies and we're, we're, I, I don't, they've already, we're, it's not a surprise. We've already told them we're not, we're not investing, but, but it's, it's, we've, I mean, I've got probably four or five pitches a week. And we've got about five people with us, or total with us at Google Attack, and a lot of them get pitches. And it's 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 interesting times because you get to see the wave of, of AI, for example, right now. You get to see the wave bringing enterprise tech to the managed service provider market, and it's fun times. And and we've also made the choice as an organization that we're not going to invest in similar technology 
just because we think it's competitive and and in general we want to make sure that our portfolios are complementary and not competitive other funds would do that so there is sometimes great technology that we again that's a great idea and they're going to be successful without us let's make some introductions and and help them win but we don't have to like we just choose not to to participate on that one I just got to wonder, have you seen a business plan yet that you concluded was written by a generative AI engine and somebody was just trying to throw this at you? I, I don't think I've seen that. I think it's coming. I really think it's coming. There are, what, what, what you can detect is when a banker writes the presentation for the company. There's nothing wrong with this, but, but you can tell when a founder didn't write the pitch and then you meet the founder and, and that. That could be a contributing factor to wanting to get involved because maybe the founder will accept your help. On the other hand, maybe the banker is not presenting the founder's vision and you need to talk to that founder, that, that, that sort of thing. So, so yeah, no AI generated companies yet. I'm sure it's going to happen. We haven't seen it. That we know. Sounds good. Now, I, any secrets that you guys have found about working together as spouses and being able to essentially 168 hours a week potentially is not getting any time off. And I know for some people that sort of sounds, at least early on in a marriage, it sounds like, wow, what an what a amazing dream. And then as you, you get older, a lot of us are kind of happy to have that space apart. And you probably need something just for mental health. But at the same time, you've connected at a level, it's rare in my observation in life. And is there any wisdom that you've gained from that that you might find that might be like the, the swim lanes, the, the, the stay in your lane, so to, so to speak. What are we working on stuff together? We're, we don't have a common office. I mean, we're sitting side by side right now because I handle the IT and, and the podcast. She handles like, like legal, NDA, where, where's that, that's her. Like I don't do that, that, that kind of stuff. And, and that's just an example of that. But, but the reality is, is even with the 30 companies we're in, uh, we're also still volunteering. Cindy's doing a little bit more volunteering than I am. But you know, when you do board work, when you, even, even for these nonprofits and stuff, you're available, but you're not directly responsible. So you get to, you get to spend husband and wife time together. You get to do that. And if, if somebody needs to have a call, you have that call. And, uh, and it's, 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 that's the way you need to go and, and, and do it. And some of these VCs we talk to, they're calling the CEO every other day. And I, that's not our style. And, and that can be really counterproductive in, in, in a lot of ways. But what would you add to that? Yeah. Early on, somebody had sent to Ron and, and he repeated it to me is that when you get married, you wake up every day and make a choice to be married. So every day you choose that. So look, I kind of look at it every day. I choose to work together. And when you have a positive forward idea and attitude, it certainly makes it easier that I'm stuck in this position and I'm not feeling fulfilled. So if you get to that where you're waking up, you're like, yeah, you know what? There's just something missing or, or that's when we know to talk to each other. That's when we know that it, it's going to spiral into a, into a bad or worse condition. But if you're waking up and do I choose it today? And it's all the times it's yes then it's a lot easier to go ahead and, and continue saying yes. And I, th I think that's great. So again, two thumbs up on that one. And I hope some people also, if they get to that point, they say, hey, I should not be working on my exit strategy. I ought to be working on my success strategy to be able to get back. What's next for you guys? 
I mean, you're off there, you were doing the Google Tech Adventures, et cetera. Is, is there another stage coming up at some point or this is working for you and you're going to be riding this horse for a while? I think the entire venture capital community is looking forward to 2024 and 2025 when the, the companies out there are going to start doing, doing M&A and, and, and getting some access to. There just hasn't been that, that much and, and that'll be interesting. So we're looking forward to that. Also looking forward to cyber is getting more and more prominent. It is not the number one thing on people's mind. I got to, I got to attend the State of the Union. I got introduced as, as a cyber investor and literally people were just telling because they wanted to talk COVID. They wanted to talk jobs. They wanted to talk whatever. And Chris Inglis, we had a conversation with him. He's like, look, cyber is not the number one thing, but it's part of everything. And I think people are realizing that. So what does 2025, 2026 look like when you have a more educated public where your doctor's office, your government representative, your, your, your kids in school are all learning about data care, about cybersecurity, about this. I think there's going to be even more opportunity out, out there for, for, for this kind of stuff. We don't plan to change. I mean, we're still doing our foundation. We're doing $2 million grants a year. We're going to, we're getting close to announcing our next grant competition. As we approach the second half of this year, we plan on doing that. We plan on keeping these investments going and supporting those companies and enjoying the benefits of what the cybersecurity community has given us. And we're just trying to give back. And knowing how much things have changed from the late 90s to 2000s, we, we know that things are going to change and, and relatively quickly. The amount of change has been increasing. The time has been shortened. So we definitely take a look at when I'm saying those, we choose to continue to do this. We look at a five-year uh, plan and, and try to satisfy it. We might take another look at a three-year plan and, and really to start making sure that this is what we want to do. What have we liked with what we do? What have we not enjoyed? And then try to do more of what we like and, and avoid those pitfalls that we could potentially see coming or that other people ha have had where we don't want to, to be that. So, so we have the luxury of, of time, but assessing short time and, and moving forward as we want. Well, we're just about done with our show. Any final thoughts before we wrap up? If anybody's watching out there and they want to learn startups, we've recorded a bunch of short five to 10 minute videos. Uh, on our YouTube channel at Google Tech Adventures. Of course, all the companies that we work with are at Google.tech. And I try not to make, this is, this is the CISO show here, and I'm, I'm, we haven't really pitched any of the companies. And that, that's something like, even when I talk to my CISO friends, I don't pitch a company unless they've got a problem that we've invested in a company to, to solve. So if people want to learn more, we're on LinkedIn, we're on Twitter, and Google.tech. And I absolutely love this industry coming from a tangential industry into it. It's great to all be frenemies, but we're all on the same side. And, and it's so, so complex what we're trying to do, but it's so fun and it is so invigorating to, to, to continue to talk to other people and learn and, and really just continue to in and see the next thing that's coming out. So it's exciting, and I'm looking forward to seeing where things go in the next three years. Well, great. Well, Ron and Cindy Gula, thank you so much for being our guests on CISO Tradecraft podcast. I hope our audience got some words of wisdom out of that. And Gula.tech 
is the place to go if you want additional information. I'm your host, G. Mark Hardy. I want to thank you for tuning in. If you're following us on a YouTube channel, go ahead and subscribe. And if you listen to us on the podcast, give us a five star. Let us give us a thumbs up. Help other people find us. Until next time, stay safe out there.